I'm not going to Indo with this 19-year-old girl. Sit across the table from her and have nothing to say. I, I won't, I'm not going. I told it to my wife and my wife was like, just ate me alive. She was, are you fucking kidding me? All your friends paint houses for a living. You think they fucking get up in the morning and say, I can't wait to go paint houses this morning? Pack your shit, it's a fucking job, Ryan. Welcome to The Drop. My name is Danny Johnson and this week on the show, we've got an interview with surf photographer Ryan Miller who talks us through the lessons he's learned traveling the world on tour with the world's best surfers and also how he beat Kelly Slater, John John, Dorian, just about every other big name in surfing in an investment competition. But before we get to that, let's catch up on the previous week in surfing with Stab's editor, Brendan Buckley. How you been? What's happening over there in Portugal? Are you still in Portugal? I'm still in Portugal. Um, I feel like I was on the wrong side of karma this morning. Um, I have some friends from where I grew up, just on the other side of the ocean here, that uh, they came over and they're calling me beforehand. They're like, what do we bring? What do we bring? I'm like, I'd spend a three mil every day. And they got here and they just thought it was a little bit chillier than I was like leading up to be. And they would have maybe brought different suits and stuff. And so they're kind of mad at me, like, oh, I would have brought my formal, my boots, blah, blah, blah. So it became this little beef thing. And then I was talking shit to them, telling them, oh, you guys are, you know, weak, whatever. Um, and then this morning, it was pretty cold. We woke up, like, we piled out in the dark. And um, I had brought the wrong suit. I brought a three mil with a bunch of holes in it when I thought I was bringing my nice plush four mil because they kind of, you know, convinced me. And after talking all my shit, I had to just put on a cold, kind of wet, whole three mil um in the dark and i was like shivering within an hour like i was freezing and oh my so God. um karma came at me when you're karma a high priest delivering surf sins it just happens automatically for you you just got, i guess so you just got dosed your own penance without even trying i know i guess that's just how it works and when like you said in the life of a high priest big wave season is here Big wave season is here, um, which I find to be hilarious because there used to be a time when they like thought that your hemisphere mattered, and now we're just past that. Like now, us elitists in the north just look at you guys down there and go, oh, <laughs> "That's cute." <laughs> what oh yeah, are you guys are doing. But the waiting period for the two major big wave events this year, which will just be the Nazareth Toe Challenge and the Quicksilver Jaws Challenge, I believe it's called. Um, Nazareth's Toe, Jaws Paddle. It's a very condensed year compared to what we saw in the past. And uh, the waiting period just opened this week and it's open till March 31st. The Big World Tour has just been stripped back year on year since I think it was 2005. And there was there was seven events there or seven stops and only three ran. And better than in 2016, there was six potential stops and then 2017, there was four. 2018, there was three. And now we're down to two events. Yeah, and only one paddle. Like, that's pretty weird. Because the toe thing is, I don't know, it's fun to watch, I think. But it's kind of pretty far removed, in my opinion, from, like, the past when it was all about just, like, paddling and they have that legit world tour. A toe thing kind of just feels like a random whoop-de-doo, you know? 
<laughs> just novel, novelty Nazare mountains. If it continues on this trajectory, then next year we'll be down to one event, which you can't really call a tour if it only goes to one place. I guess so, but I love, uh, I love one event world championships. I know that the NBA calls their winning team the world champions, even though it's just the American competition. They are the best, I guess. Uh, it kind of checks out, but... <laughs> You think what a team from Malta is going to be? <laughs> you never know, Buck. Hey, I, I can't help but feel a little bit responsible for the the decline in big wave world tour surfing and, and the lack of events. Like I just, uh, I've never watched a single event. I was going to say it's your fault in general, but uh, you've never watched an event. Maybe it wasn't in your time zone, but I forget if it was twenty eighteen or twenty nineteen. The Jaws events where Twiggy pack that one wave where they had to they just canceled it like after a few heats that was probably the most fascinating like hour or two of competitive surfing that i've seen in my life like that was fucking wild right that was that was far and away the craziest hour of of like live surfing that i had seen and then they called it off which was you know smart because they didn't want to kill anybody but like I agree that they can be slow, especially when they have to try to cherry pick a window where it's going to be like not just a few hours, but like a day of good waves. It gets kind of hard, but when they get it right, it's a home run, I think. Yeah. I think I'd still rather watch a couple of high-performance surfers do some finners on some two-footers for some reason. Would you watch one of those like Cape Fear ones though? Like remember when they were just towing people into, uh, into Cape Slander? When it was like yeah, the the year Cape Salander, I watched the previous year on the cliff right there, and it wasn't it wasn't that magnificent. It wasn't a special day, but that year when it was basically, I think Vaughn Blakey said it best that he was trying to mind surf the waves that were coming in, and they weren't even mind surfable. And then yet they sent the competitors out there, and they tried to surf those just mammoth beasts right on the rocks. And yeah, it, that was that was definitely entertaining but I, I feel like that's that's not what i imagine when i imagine the big wave world tour that was a such a freak novelty event where they jagged the the craziest grossest swell ever yeah yeah well i don't know maybe the maybe the nazarene toe challenge will be your event then because i think <laughs> people will obviously be getting a ton of waves like so much easier with the ski than to hope something kind of swings your direction on a 10 or 11 4 whatever the hell they ride i'd watch it if it was two foot You'd watch the Nazare two foot challenge? Yeah, yeah, yeah. On eleven foot boards? Yeah. <laughs> that would be good. Uh, I'd be down. A couple of floaters. Just look out for an interview with Bill Sharp, the man who actually coined the XXL phrase, because XXL is dead. There's no more that's just gone from all the awards and everything. It's not it's called the Big Wave Awards now. Um, we've got an interview with him coming, kind of explaining how that came to be, where it went, what he's doing now. He talks about that 100-foot wave series and HBO she's involved with. Um, but I can just talk about that 100 or the XXL thing. I kind of went into the interview thinking that he – I didn't do it, Craig Jarvis did, but I kind of expected like he'd be proud of that name or proud of – like it became like such a – like it got picked up. Like a lot of times you you attach a name to something and it just nobody actually calls it that. They still call it whatever they were calling it before. But XXL became like – a part of just it's a term in surfing and it still is like oh it's xxl swell and i guess he made it up just because that company's swell.com that retailer sponsored it the one year and he just liked it because it rhymed and somehow it just ran off and now it's literally like 
the phrase that we use to describe a certain caliber of waves. Um, but the interview is super interesting. He talks about that, talks about he was at WSL for a while. Sounds like things got a little bit weird there, but gives you a look inside that world. Uh, 100-foot wave thing is interesting, so keep an eye out. Maybe I was especially drawn to it because I've always been an XXM guy. Um, What's that stand XXM, for? extra, extra medium. <laughs> like that's... <laughs> <laughs> I got like I got a nine zero, and there's like at least where I live now, there's like a few reefs that like will hold any swell that Europe kind of throws at it, and it's like it's fun, like it's not really like dangerous big. It's like epitome of XXM, and I am just such an XXM surfer on my nine zero. So I think I could be the commissioner, and I think maybe I will start a tour where you ride nine zeros in vaguely scary waves, and that, uh, maybe that would hook you in. That is what I would watch, but. And another big wave thing, we've got a documentary on Peter Mel coming soon. You know, the Santa Cruz crew had a crazy amount of talent. And we were a posse and we were a force to be reckoned with, you know, and that's kind of the mentality that we had. We surfed all day and battled in the water and then we'd come home and we'd party at night and it was just like, we wanted to outdo each other. We used each other to one-up each other. And then it was like that at Mavericks. If Lee got the biggest one, now I gotta get the biggest one. Once the meth came in, it was just, just. I wanted to be on and I wanted that feeling all the time. And then just wheels fell off, you know, sort of pretty quick. No way, no fucking way. Literally, I came to a point where I was going nuts. We're actually premiering it in Santa Cruz next Wednesday, which is his birthday, also the day before Thanksgiving in the U.S. So if you are in Santa Cruz, and especially if you're a Stab Premium member, you'll get in for free. So go and check that out. If you're not in Santa Cruz, then you'll see it online about a week later. So keep an eye out. I've seen an early version of that. It's really good. He's got a crazy story. The pickup is back. And... We've got some insider tips for this Hawaiian season. Do we? So this is all about the vans. We do. We do. I, you don't have any? I do. Hit me with some. Hit me with the scoop. Well, the vans, Triple Crown Surfing is coming back. We talked about it before, but it's uh, going to be digital again. And the big twist this year is, you know, it's still two waves at Sunset, two waves at Pipe, two waves at Haleiwa. But one of those waves has to be on an alternative or inappropriate, I think, is the modern word that we use here, uh, surfboard. And I think the insider tip that I picked up on, because we have some Mikey Ciaramella did a nice thing on a nice piece where he was shirtless, of course, and talking about how everything works in his little bunker. Now, since nobody has time to read the terms and conditions, I'm here to break down the rules of the Vans Triple Crown of Surfing in 90 seconds or less. Like last year, this winter's event will be entirely digital. There are no jerseys, clocks, or air horns. It's just you versus the ocean for an entire month. In other words, a true test of the best male and female surfer on the North Shore. The sign-up process opens today and closes on December 15th. The sign-up can be found on vanstriplecrownofsurfing.com. There are 125 slots to be shared between male and female competitors, and the sign-up fee is $125. His biggest tip was if you ride an Alaya at the second reef pipe and pack a tube, maybe do a 360 on the way out, 
you'll win, which to me, it's fairly simple. Um, really laying out the strategy out there. This year, however, there is one major rule change. One of your six counting rides must be on what Vans is calling a progressive craft. But what is that? Well, it could be an unusual shape, a strange fin assortment, maybe a modified skimboard. Think of it like this. The more audacious the craft relative to the wave that you ride it on, the higher you'll be scored. So max points would probably come from something like riding in Alaia at maxed out pipeline. People so just pack a second reef wave or pack roll in second reef, pack a bomb and pipe on Alaia, do a 360, and you might win. Or you might at least get a high score for that wave. So that's what he was suggesting, I think. Um, so that'd be my insider tip or really an extension of his. What do you have to say? I don't know. I guess it's open right now. I know that the sign-up window is open, so um yes yeah, sign up if you're if you're if you're going to be in hawaii from the 21st of december to the 21st of jan i think that's the competition window and you can come second to either john john or carissa depending on whether you're male or female which i made that claim already right that's my that's my lock of the <laughs> i think i made that on a previous episode that's here. your prediction actually you know what with the alternate boards uh, i think uh, I think that might be something that throws a real spanner in the works. Like they're definitely beatable and I think people will be super hungry this year. This is the second year it's gone digital in this format. And I think people were feeling it out last year, but I think this year, especially with the focus on the alternate craft, that I think it's a completely different contest. And actually as part of the pickup, so uh, Nathan Fletcher, Ash and Goggins are going to be hosting the pickup Series, the show that we do with Vans, Stab does with Vans over in Hawaii. They're over there now. They've got a pickup truck and they've also ordered 10 alternate crafts that will have a distinct spray job. I think Simon Jones has got a board in the mix, Pizel, Al Chapman, Glenn Pang and, and a bunch of others. So, um, yeah, I mean, who, I hope, hope some of those boards show up in, in, in people's entries and I hope some weird boards just show up from all over the place and it throws a real spanner in the mix buck i was wondering like because you know i might be the commissioner of the xxm tour but for the pickup this year they got a nice like beautiful green pickup truck that you know drive around shoot some stuff in all that and i was thinking if i could maybe do like a european extension like a hatchback type situation <laughs> just kind of drive around some parking lots smoking ciggies Listen to techno. Oh yes, that would be you guys. The surf news from here. That's what the show needs. We need to get global, and and you're our European. I mean, American sounding, but European based culture expert. So I think that's a great idea. Hey, who are you picking for this year? Nick Nick Von Rupp seems hard to beat. I mean, he's so on it. He's got to be one of the most on it guys in Europe. He seems like he's on every swell, and I think he's he's looking good for the the hatchback. <laughs> now, who are you picking in the band's triple crown? I told you, John John Carissa, easy. Oh, come on. You don't look what about Betty Lou Sakura? I don't know if you know um, much about Betty Lou, but she was fifteen last year and she was really annoyed that she couldn't compete because the age limit's actually sixteen. And so this year, Betty Lou Sakura, who's a young Hawaiian surfer, she actually lives in Eddie Aikau's house. We did a little profile on her even though she couldn't compete last year. And she, 
oh, the, the clips I've, I've seen of her in the past year, she like knifes deep barrels. She's got an incredible rail game. She's like slides the tail all around the pocket and I've got full faith that she could take down Carissa and Steph and, and anyone else who's, who's a favourite you know, on the female side. That's a good call. I forgot about that bit last year about her not being able to enter, but she is gnarly. She's really gnarly. That's why I think John will be so hard to beat. He just knows those waves so well. He could just toy with all of them, you yeah. know? And so she must have some of that too growing up there, living in Eddie Aikau's house. Um, yeah, but what about Zeke? Zeke's on such a mad run at the moment. He's He seems somewhat unstoppable and and – and what if Zeke – we all remember that heat at Bells where Zeke just sat on John John and paddled over the top of him and actually rattled him. What if Zeke just did that for an entire month from, from the 21st of December to the 21st of January, just, just paddled over the top of John John and, and, and rattled him up a little bit? I think it'd be brilliant. I mean, the WSL had to make a new rule because of that, right? So maybe – I don't think there's anything in the band's Triple Crown thing yet, so – it, it would take a full year to respond. So I think that's a good call. Jordy could be hard too. If he gets over there early, I think he owns a house over there. And if he gets there early and he's just another person that like his frame at a wave, like sunset or Hall Eva, like he's, if and he puts time in out there. Let's not forget and, that he's been spending a bit of time on longboards recently. So the alternate craft thing is right up his alley. He's been competing on a longboard. Maybe that was just a, a prelude to his triple, tri- triple crown campaign. Oh, look at that. What if he just quits the tour and goes full Torn Martin on us? <laughs> Jordan Martin. <laughs> Owning a surf camp isn't as dreamy as you'd think, but here's how to build one anyway. <laughs> this is a fascinating story on Stab Premium this week. Uh, it's written by Brian Dickerson, and we've actually got a little voice note from him where he can break it down for us. Yeah, so people will remember Brian. He's a bit of a wave pool expert, certified wave pool expert also. I'm going to give him that certification right now. But he's deviated from that topic to talk about surf camps right now. So let's hear what he had to say. Hey, it's Brian Dickerson from Wave Pool Mag, and we partnered again with Stab. This time, something a little bit different. Got out of the chlorine, jumped back into the salt water to explore how to build a surf camp. To make this article, we spoke to two heavy hitters in the industry, Rue Hill from Surf Simply and Ray Wilcoxon from Kandui Resort. And their stories are pretty much uh, the best success stories for surf camp operators out there working in the world today. There are anecdotes about what they went through from, you know, slogging in the mud to swatting away mosquitoes to looking for just the right place. Uh, they're engaging stories. It's, it's a lot of work. And this really comes through in uh, the conversations I've had with them. So hopefully that comes through in the article as well. You can give it a read. Uh, my favorite quote from the article was in speaking with Ray. He said, as a surf camp operator in uh, Kandui Resort, people all day long, he'll hear, ah, you're living the dream, you're living the dream, mate. But he doesn't quite get that because he's, you know, up at the crack of dawn, making sure everyone has breakfast, making sure the cook is going to show up and taking care of all the behind the scene things that you don't see. 
So his impression is very, very different. So check out this article if you want to learn all the ins and outs and the behind the scenes dirt on how to build a surf camp. All right, Buck. That's a little insight into, into Brian's story there about owning a surf camp. What do you think? I think it's fascinating but disappointing. <laughs> like I feel like a surf camp was just one of those things like in your head you could always go back to like, oh, like long term I could just do this. And you have this vision in your head of like you set up on some perfect wave and all your guests are happy all the time and you just show them your great little spot and everybody's having fun. And I just never wanted to like acknowledge that that job would actually be work. And so hearing from people that explain that it is, I mean, it's obvious, but um, yeah, that, that part was disappointing. But the fascinating part was that it really breaks down how they went about doing, setting up their operations. And that's really cool. I mean, it's, I'd never seen something done like that before. Something that just lays it out step by step like that. So I thought it was a great read. Even if a even if a surf camp was as dreamy as it could be, without ever having to think about the reality of it, like even if it was just surfing perfect waves and eating delicious food every day, I feel like it would just be just be too much for me. I'm not cut out for that much happiness. It, what you think you like snap on somebody for asking for extra bananas in the morning? No, I just think like it's like eating chocolate ice cream every meal. It just I don't know I just need, I need to suffer a little bit like it seems too too idyllic to me. I do think what you said about the company in terms of the people that are around you spending time with that would be a real positive thing because people are there they're on their surf trip they're surfing incredible waves they're relaxed and they're happier than they probably are in their regular life. That would be make it a really good workplace a lot better than uh, working at a morgue or something some somewhere where most of the people are dead you know i think people will be i think would be be some good company at surf camps yeah you know i've actually never heard anybody raise that argument before that working at a tropical surf camp might be better than uh, working with dead bodies all day but um that's a bold take danny <laughs> you i mean a morgue or an office like either one <laughs> an office everyone's dead inside it's, it's they're not that different to a morgue the morgue is dead outside? Yeah, you're dead inside and outside. But you look great because you've got makeup on. Yeah, they do you up good in those places, huh? They sure do. I wonder if I could get my hair cut at one, like just not as like a dead person, <laughs> but just like like get my hair done at a morgue. You'd probably get a good deal, right? They'd probably be happy to work with somebody that's like alive. Or maybe they wouldn't be. Maybe they like dead people. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Do they Are they in there cutting dead people's hair? I thought it was just makeup, but I'm sure they're tidying up here and there. I don't know. I mean, if I died today and had this messy haircut, I hope they'd clean me up before the funeral. Right? I mean, they like, must be really good at haircuts. That's a lot of pressure, someone's last ever haircut. Yeah, like the last they're going to see of your flesh. Like you got to, I don't know, they're definitely, I, I, if you die in a bad hair day, you want your hair cleaned up. <laughs> <laughs> Why did an Australian artist burn 30K worth of art and what's it got to do with Kelly Slater? The answer to that question, Danny is nfts non-fungible tokens i gotta say we've talked about shit like this on here before i kind of get it jed smith wrote this story about a an artist who as the title suggests just burned a bunch of his work because he sold them as nfts and people got to keep them as a you know the digital thing and kelly may have bought one i still i kind of get it do you get it i just 
I don't know. I get it in principle and I understand how the technology works and it seems like a, a, quite a compelling piece of technology but it, I, it still doesn't. The motive as to why someone would want to own an NFT is what, where, where it loses me because I just, I just can't relate to that at all because it's, you own nothing tangible. You just own, it's like the bragging rights alone are the only thing you get from owning an NFT, which is a digital bit of art. I guess the argument, like you could pose that argument in general, like all you really get, I guess you look at a piece of art. Like I'm looking at a stupid picture of like a, a sand dune right now. <laughs> Somebody owns this, <laughs> Airbnb host. I guess they could look at it instead of just keep it on their phone. Yeah. But it's, it's mostly, I feel like a lot of art is bragging rights anyway, right? Yeah, but if you own something physical, you own it. If you own something digital that can be replicated so easily, then it's you don't actually own it. And anyone else can so, own it to the same extent that you do other than the contract. So there's, there's less, I don't know, there's less motive for me. But, I mean, we're, I'm obviously wrong because Kelly Slater's smarter than me and he's jumped on board and he's, he's purchased work from this artist before and, and he, he got in contact and potentially bought one of these NFTs. So there we have it. What impressed you about the technology of it? Like I, I, cause I get kind of the principle. I just don't get this technology that you find like impressive or compelling. <laughs> so I'll probably butcher it, but my understanding is that you can buy an NFT and then you can sell it, but then retain um, money. So every time it's then sold after you, you can, you can work out the ledger so that it, it divides up between a, like previous owners. So there's kind of like this complex, is this complex uh, way of doing these, like essentially what are digital contracts that require, once they're set up, require no effort to manage. They're all automated. And so you can do really interesting things with um, charities, for example, if you were to sell something for charity and then it got sold and then if it was to be resold again, then a portion might go to charity every time. But, yeah, I mean, it's, it's pretty, tricky to, pretty tricky to explain. I'm just, I just can't get past Kelly. Being involved because you know I think anyone above the age of thirty is is not is, is almost like angry at the idea of trying to understand NFTs and there's Kelly like the guy's just he just defies he's just always drinking from the fountain of youth you know what I mean like he's on Instagram all day connecting with his global audience which is you know that kind of technology is pretty youthful I think and then he's still on tour and he's mixing it up with surfers that are half his age and. He's anti-vax. That's a young man's game. I mean, most older people are trying not to die and, and it's the younger people that are like less worried about dying from COVID. And, and then now he's in, into NFTs, you know. Yeah, a young man's game. It is. <laughs> he's turning 50 pretty soon. Uh, he's 49. What other areas of his life is he, is he just defying the, the rules of aging that everyone else seems to comply with? We've actually got a really interesting story coming on Sad Premium about how somebody reached out and started one of those like Instagram sort of nostalgic accounts where they're just posting like old surf photos and stuff and old moments and people are like, oh yeah, this is great, good old days, you know? Um, but what the guy noticed is that once you develop like a little following, nothing massive, all of a sudden just like people like Kelly 
started following him and he's like, Oh, that's cool. Like Kelly cares about these random photos and I'm pulling all that. But like, he start to like reply to his stories and stuff. And like a lot of people, I think he said Gur was in there too, but basically he said, just by starting this account, all of a sudden these people that like he looked up to his whole life were like hitting him up, like replying to his stuff. And like, he would have conversation with them. He's like, Whoa, I'm just a random guy who just started a, an Instagram account like three months ago. And now all of a sudden, like he described talking to Kelly, just DMing back and forth for like two hours one night, just about random shit because he started an Instagram account posting old surf mag photos. Like it's, it's pretty wild. That is unbelievable. Yeah. Fascinating man. Maybe they're, maybe they're chatting NFTs, ledgers. I don't know. (laughs) The 2021 world champions are going to be declared soon. Uh, I should probably say that it's the stab highway world champions, but as we discussed, it's a world champion winning team, which will be, Declared soon. Stab Highway is almost wrapping up. Episode 7 drops this week. Episode 8, the last episode, drops next week. So we are going to have world champions of Stab Highway very soon. It's a very exciting time for that series. Yeah, it's down to the last two teams and the win will be announced. Episode 8 and also the Monster Air winner, which was 10 Gs of cash. And yeah, but episode seven this week, Buck, and this app, actually something I'd love to know from you, you're an aerialist, right? And episode seven opens with the challenge, best air before sunrise, and which involved obviously surfers getting up, trying to do airs before the sun comes up over the horizon, which is not something a lot of aerialists are known to do. And Harry Bryan actually has a great quote on there where he says, his knees don't wake up till, till 11 a.m., and I was just wondering, like, if you're an aerialist, when you were up early uh, going for a surf, are you, are you trying airs on your, on your first wave? God, no. God, no. I, don't, I can't even think of an early air that I've done in my life. Like, it just doesn't happen. Especially, I feel like, maybe somewhere in the tropics, but I feel like when you're, especially when you're, in, when you're somewhere where you're wearing a wetsuit, it's like, it's just impossible. Like I think about the session I had this morning, it was just like my first few waves just so cold, so stiff. And, um, my friends were actually laughing as Portugal. I'd say they're kind of known for their warm ups here. Like it is a judgment free zone on the beach. You do whatever you want to get that body going before you paddle out. What do you do? Yeah, what's, your, what's, friends, what's, what do you do? I just run down the beach and I try to paddle out fast, try to warm up my upper body, but I don't really do that. My one friend is into it though. And he's like, it's so great here. Like, you know, nobody gives me funny looks. <laughs> <laughs> is he just like Anastasia Ashley, just, just gyrating on the, on the shore with headphones on? He, he's twerking away, man. Bubble butt, bubble, bubble, bubble butt. You should see him. You should see him. That's you, Gilly. You, you listening? Um, yeah. And so maybe air guys aren't, you know, big warm up people either, but no, you just can't do an air early. Like your body just says, no, I think Harry, Harry Bryant said best, like knees. I don't think anybody's knees wake up before 11. Yeah. Other things in the episode, there's nude surfing, there's busking. You know, that song, uh, one of the challenges was life is a highway. I'm really looking forward to that. Yeah. I want to see, cause there's a lot. I mean, I guess I have high expectations for that, I'll just say. Because I want to see somebody pouring their heart into it. 
Yeah, which they do. Then we got um, Noah throwing up at the opera house as part of the team portraits challenge. Harry spewing on the rocks at Kate Salander. And then Harry again swimming Sydney Harbour with a stake attached to his leg and then getting chased by the cops. So, yeah, it's all, it's all happening. Stab Highway episode seven is out this week. I'm trying to rope my friend into going to a seafood buffet today. I'm going to try to tell him we're going to a nice restaurant and then just take him to this like shitty eight-year-old seafood buffet. He's going to be real mad at me. Maybe I'll get him to vomit everywhere. <laughs> Speaking of spewing, one more thing this week, which is crazy kind of headline. The headline on stabmag.com reads, this volcano is destroying one of the Canary Islands' premier surf spots. And so it's the Cumbre Vieja volcano on La Palma Island, and the wave it's ruined is called Los Guedes. We just got a fucking volcano ruining a wave, man. What, what do you make of that? Well, I think volcanoes have given us a lot of good waves over, over the years. So I, I think it's, it's, it's okay for the volcanoes to take one back. Well, that's what I was thinking too. The Canary Islands are volcanic themselves. Like they're only there because volcanoes. So like it's a bummer obviously, but like volcanoes give, volcanoes take away. Yeah. You know? I do feel like it's one of those like kind of, can't quite call it apocalyptic, but has that kind of feel just like makes you just realize asteroids can hit the earth and shit. It feels to me like a good excuse to go surfing, like blow something off and be like, if somebody yells at you, just be like, I don't know, man, a fucking volcano can blow up and kill all of us. I'm just going to go get a few waves. You know what I mean? Like, (laughs) (laughs) I just can't imagine that, that justification, uh, making much sense, but sure. (laughs) You don't like it? Well, I, I'm just trying to think. I'm, I'm on the other side of that. Um, you know, it's it's. I guess it's abstract enough to stop me in my tracks and and, and confuse me. But uh, the logic is not that airtight, but. Well, I think internally it makes sense. Like internally, you're like, okay, I could stress over this or this or that, or I could just go get a few waves and enjoy myself because the volcano could erupt, kill everybody. Oh, okay, I get you. Good internal logic, but I think maybe you're right. It's externally confusing enough that you're like i don't know what the fuck this guy's talking about but i guess he's gonna go surfing just rattle off something about apocalypse and volcanoes anyway i would put that down as an irrational fear for most people i mean depending on where you live but yeah well anyway (laughs) volcanoes everybody's gonna die go surfing uh because volcanoes are gonna get you all right it's time for a surf sin folks We've got another, the first time I listened to this, I thought this was almost a confession on another person's behalf, which we've had one or two of. And now I've come around as a high priest, I've come around. I've really got to a point of comprehension with it. And so we've got Lyle here who, yeah, he has a sin that's just almost on that secondary realm, but it's an interesting case. Yeah. All right. Let's hear it. What's up, guys? Uh, my name's Lyle, and here's my surf sin. Uh, a group of friends and I were down in Panama um, surfing this left reef break kind of thing. Um, and a friend of mine who's probably lower down on the list of surfing skill level um, was out there with us. His name's Evan, and it was about a head-high day quite a few people out and Evan manages to drop in on the spots 
like local enforcer's daughter and there was almost a collision. And so Evan was kind of stuck inside on the reef and the enforcer guy paddled in and starts yelling at him saying pretty much everything under the sun about how he's probably how he's going to kill him and whatnot. My Spanish isn't that good, but Evan, um, he is all of six, three, 220 pounds. Like he's a big dude. And his Spanish also isn't that good. So he's thinking, he's saying lo siento, meaning I'm sorry. But what he's actually saying is listo, listo, I'm ready. So as this guy is saying, like, I'm basically trying to scare him off. Evan thinking that he's saying, I'm sorry. He's basically saying like, I'm ready. I'm ready. Listo, listo, listo. Um, basically, like, I'm ready for the fight. And they're is a little bit of a crowd on the beach, like thinking of, holy shit, is this going to turn into punches? Um, but it ends up fading off. So really my, my question is what is my surf sin for bringing out a, someone that's more of on the beginner side of surfing that would do that. And B the surf sin of going paddling out to a spot where you just don't speak the local language at all. Thanks guys. That's an interesting one. What, what do you make of that? He mentioned the language thing, and I agree with the argument that language, not speaking a language can be an advantage in a situation like that. I mean, his friend was on the wrong side of it saying least so that he's ready to fight this man. Uh, but in general, I've heard of this tactic where if somebody's blowing up on you, you just think they're saying hello and you just smile and nod back at them and like give them thumbs up and they just like get frustrated enough where they just don't want to even deal with you because they're like, this person can't understand me. Um, so I just want to throw that out there as like a potential strategy slash tactic. And like I said, at first I thought maybe did Lyle sin here or did his friend? But I think the problem is like when you go surfing with a friend that doesn't surf that much or is kind of out of their league a little bit, you are taking them on as a liability. Yep. Like they, you're liable for that. Right. Yep. And so to me, this guy came into the surf world and kind of just ruffled some things around. And I think the way to even it out is that Lyle has to go into whatever world this guy knows real well and just do something incredibly <laughs> stupid. Like maybe he has to visit him at work one day and like really offend this guy's boss. But he has to like go and be a liability in some other little world like ours that he won't really pick up on. But everybody around him like, what the fuck is this guy doing? And so that's that's what I got for Lyle. Oh, that's good. Give me an example. Have you got anything? What what comes to your mind when you think of that? Honestly, it was a workplace. Like I'm picturing Lyle being able to enter this gentleman's place of work and just be loud and obnoxious. Just do something that's so far from what's acceptable in that culture there that everybody's just staring at his friend going, who is this animal named Lyle that you brought into this place? And so, yeah, hopefully maybe this guy works in an office. Maybe he's in a morgue cutting people's hair, in which case it'd be hard to offend the people that are around there because they're all dead because of volcanoes. But <laughs> <laughs> that is a good business model. Open up next to a morgue, next to an uh, active volcano. That is just yeah. it's hot <laughs> business strategy. Oh, your customers just keep on coming in. Yeah. Flowing in like lava. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Buck, I think that's a fair penance. I like it. 
my penance is, um, I mean, uh, the way I figured it, Lyle, he's gone on a surf trip with this guy. They must be pretty good friends. Pretty, I mean, you only go on surf trips with really good friends, so which means he's probably going to get an invite to this guy's wedding, which means he might even make the wedding party and maybe even be the Ooh. best man. Either way, he's likely to get a microphone shoved in his face and he's going to be asked to make a speech. And I thought his penance should be, given the nature of this surf sin, is that he should have to do that speech entirely in Spanish. No explaining, no contextualizing, just stand up and <laughs> deliver a speech in whatever broken Spanish he's capable of and then walk off the podium or the dais or, or the pew and not explain himself. I like that a lot. I think that's really good, especially like, because weddings are the type of place where, you know, there's a lot of a lot of kind of traditions that maybe one family has that if something a little bit abnormal happens, you could a lot of people are just respectful and like, okay, this is probably what they do. So maybe a lot of people in the crowd would be like, Oh, this must be a tradition that they have carried on and you just kind of get into it, but oh, that was beautiful, man. <laughs> and so like at, at my wedding, my buddy for some reason we got them all revved up to um i mean i'm not like a especially patriotic person but we got them revved up to i think sing the national anthem which is what they do to start like a lot of sporting events in the u.s no way <laughs> and people were so confused but also had that like respect to it you know they're <laughs> like yep okay like this this just must be how they wanted to start the wedding with the national anthem um and so i think the spanish thing would be great it's it's <laughs> <laughs> people would be so confused into thinking that like it has to be a thing I guess did you sign the marriage certificate with, with Laird Hamilton I did Laird Buckley legally <laughs> thanks Buck and thanks Lyle for your surf sin don't forget to send your surf sins in our emails are in the episode description now let's get to my interview with surf photographer Ryan Miller there's a, there's a bit of a joke amongst people that work in surf magazines or the surfers that work with them that all surf photographers are pretty much lunatics and some of them have been notoriously difficult to deal with over the years but ryan miller is i mean while he's a, definitely a lunatic he's he's such an easy guy to work with he makes collaborating really easy he's, he delivers his great work he's incredible incredibly professional and he writes these hilarious emails full of just these anecdotes and from his adventures on the road. And uh, he's actually written a couple of stories for Stab Premium recently about photography, investment, relationships and other big picture life stuff. I highly suggest reading those if you haven't. I mean, so, some people are just good at saying funny shit and cracking jokes. Other people write funny shit and, and some people do funny shit. And bad boy Rai Rai, he really does all three. <laughs> say you went to you're in new york watching cj run a marathon yeah i went to shit i actually went snowboarding with my family for a week in colorado and then cj was going to run the marathon on whatever like the day after i got in and i got in super late at night and i was like holy shit there's no fucking way i can't go watch one of my besties run the marathon 
um, I got to go cheerlead this thing. And then I met him on the course in Brooklyn, and then I met him on the course again in Central Park. Oh, no way. Did you, did you sling him a, a glass of water or whatever? Nothing, just some high fives. He was fine. We're, we're at like mile nine in Brooklyn. And um, he was all cheers, waving everyone on, fuck yeah, dancing. And then mile 25, dude, the guy was hurting bad. <clears throat> he saw me, didn't even, like, wouldn't even look at me, smile for the camera, nothing, just gritting his teeth. Those guys say the race starts at like mile 20. Any dipshit can do 18, 19 miles. And then at mile 20 to 26 is when you really start to get blacked out. Yeah. And that's his, that's his program at the moment. Like he trains and, and focuses on that sort of thing. Or is, was he just doing it unprepared? No, he runs. He's been, he's been running ever since um, he's been done the tour. Like I never saw him run once. <laughs> he didn't. We were on tour for years together, stayed together the whole time, never ran a single time. And then the second he got done the tour, I don't know what's inside his head. Um, obviously, he's a little bit nuts. Um, this little scrawny Florida guy going over the ledge at anything Chopu pipeline, scary as it gets. Um, I guess he needed something in his life when that was gone. And uh, maybe he f- scratches that itch with running. I don't know. But he never did it before. He does it a shit ton now. Hmm. He's not. He's not any good. <laughs> he's been doing it for years. He still goes slow as shit. Uh, have you noticed any common threads? In you've obviously spent a lot of time with elite level tour surfers and elite level surfers that aren't on tour. Is there a consistency in outlook, disposition, something amongst them all that you notice? And like driving shit? No, they're fucking all over the place. No, I'm trying to think about like immediately, you know, it comes to mind of like guys that are all over the map. Like guys like Seabass that won't surf the comp bank. And, uh, you know, and then it'll get out in the heat and we'll paddle battle the shit out of you. You know, at Julian, he had to apologize to him on the podium in West Oz for kicking him on the first wave. Um, <laughs> And then you have a guy, you know, like CJ, who can't and won't get up for a competitor uh, like lesser than him, and get will be get will get beat by you know lower tier surfers because um, he just can't rise up for those guys. He doesn't. He can't find the energy to get motivated or excited enough if he if he feels like he's the favorite. Yeah, I kind of I feel that was a little bit a little bit Jeremy Flores a little bit like that. Um, really wants to take down the big names and uh, really didn't want to, didn't have any energy to surf the, you know, shitty whatever round two heats if it, the waves weren't good or he didn't have an opponent that he didn't want to smash. Yeah. Have you slipped into coach when, you, when you're staying with surfers and, and hanging with them at, at the event site? Are, are you ever bouncing ideas around and, and trying to help them get their head together? Oh, the coach thing. Yeah, some guys are super legit um, technique coaches, looking at the waves, looking at the ocean. This guy got a seven on a left. This, you know, all the sevens have come from lefts. You're going to move down the beach here on high tide. And then there's like the coaches that are more support crew. And um, yeah, it's just different. Like guys do different, uh, different things. And yeah, I fuck. 
I do all that shit. Like I love booking the house and cooking dinner and getting in rental cars and making sure the guys are on the right flights and making sure everyone's happy. Like the headspace is got to be equally as important as to, you know, your surfing ability as to where it's going to take you. And if guys are happy on the road and not bummed on, holy shit, I'm away from my family for super long and we're having a good time, then, you know, I hope that super plays in. I hear it all the time of like, holy shit, I had such a good time on the road. You were gone for a month. You know, thank you so much. That was great. You know, I never felt like, you know, shit or missed my family or whatever. Um, you know, and I think about that a lot. I'm super active and like, okay, let's make sure, you know, everyone's stoked on dinner and, you know, the groceries are in the house and we got a nice place to stay. So a lot of the guys have trouble staying together because they're so competitive. And so people on the road are either, you know, WSL crew athletes or company guys and you know the company guys only roll with their company and I'm just I'm completely Switzerland 100% neutral can stay with anyone and you know I'm not you know not I'm not a competitor and you know I think it's easier to relax around someone that's super neutral than like someone like going oh shit I you know I don't want to stay with any other surfers but I also don't want to stay alone you know, look at this scrub over here, Miller. He's, he's, he's neutral. Let's <laughs> just stay with him by default. And I heard that you mix up who you stay with. Like when you travel on tour, you'll actually purposely stay with a bunch of different people at, at each stop so that you can, I don't know. I mean, I'm sure that's, that's fun. Or, or why do you do that? I try to do that a lot. So I used to travel, um, I used to travel a ton with um, Gabe Kling on tour. And, you know, he, I went to high school with him. He was on tour for a few years, kind of off and on, QS, CT, back and forth. Um, and I went to grade school with him. And then after he had fell off, or when he was still on tour, we'd stay with CJ and Damien too. And then he was gone, Damien was gone. And then I stayed with CJ for years. You know, and between those two guys, Gabe, you know, a, a be- decent amount with Damien, decent amount with Benny Bourgeois, and then CJ for a long time. All those guys look like me, talk like me. They're the same age as me. They're all from Florida, or Benny was from North Carolina. Super similar mindsets. And I had this one trip. It was years ago. I was on tour. Um, I was doing the tour, and I think Carissa was like 17, 18-ish, 19 in there. Um, She had already won a world title, and I think she was the only person I'd never spoken to on tour ever. Terrified of her. (laughs) <laughs> she's a go-getter man nike called me up and was like hey we want to we want to send carissa to bali basically just on like a you know a holiday thank you killer stoke you out trip we want but we want you to go shoot it you know we don't we need assets and we're gonna and i was like okay cool and like two other nike guys were gonna go with us and all the email threads were like okay you know we're booking this five-bedroom villa and this and that and then so all of a sudden like a week out i see this email Oh, we just need a two-bedroom. It's just Carissa and her girlfriend and Miller. And I was like, whoa, what's happening here? And I called the Nike guy, and I'm like, hey, what's going on? And he's like, oh, well, we're not going. It's just going to be you. Rizal will take care of you guys. He'll, he'll pay for everything. He's Hurley, and um, he'll take you guys out and show you around and stuff. You'll be with him. And I was like, no, I won't. I've, I've been over there. Rizal is a businessman. Like He runs all of Hurley Indonesia. He'll, he'll go to dinner with us once. We'll never see him again. I was like, I'm not doing this. 
I'm not going to Indo with this 19-year-old girl. Sit around the sit across the table from her and have nothing to say. I I won't. I'm not going. I told it to my wife, and my wife was like, just ate me alive. She was, are you fucking kidding me? All your friends paint houses for a living. You think they fucking get up in the morning and say, I can't wait to go paint houses this morning? Pack your shit. It's a fucking job, Ryan. And I was like, oh, okay. Tell between the legs. I went to Bali, 10 days with Carissa. She named me Bad Boy Rai Rai on the trip. It's stuck ever since. It was one of the best trips I've ever been on. I learned so much from hanging out with this 19-year-old girl in Bali for 10 days about all kinds of stuff, about being a world champion at, you know, super young, body image. You know, she didn't look like me. She didn't talk like me. Super different, polar opposites, except for surfing was the only thing we had in common. And I learned so much from her. And then so that next year on the road, I would have her over for dinner, like once an event. Me, her, CJ, whoever else was staying with us. And we'd seriously sit and talk over wine for three hours. And she would leave, and, and it was rad. Like, CJ was a young world champion. Now he's a, was an old man on tour. And she was super young world champ. And, like, to hear them, like, riff on what they had in common and, you know, her, him helping her out with tips. And same thing, like, her showing him what it means to be, you know, a young woman in this position he learned a lot and everyone would leave and Chris would text me, oh my God, thank you so much. That was the best night of my whole trip. I had a blast hanging with you guys and CJ would go to bed. Wow, Ryan, that was awesome. Tried to roll it out from there. Like, okay, that was super fun. Like, let's have Seabass over for dinner. Or I think me and CJ stayed with Seabass one time in Fiji and it was like, whoa, that guy's super fun. Holy shit. I like him a lot. Let's, let's have him over for dinner at some place. That guy was super cool. We'd never hung out with him before. Snowball from there. We'd have other people over for dinner or try to hang out with like, let's be, you know, one year, I think CJ's probably second to last or third last year on tour. I said, let's push ourselves. We've been to all these events so many times. Let's push ourselves to do something we haven't done at every single location, everywhere we go. And so we, we did, we tried to do one activity and then we tried to go, which I don't do yoga ever, but we tried to go to a yoga studio in every single country in every language. And, uh, it was fucking hilarious, dude. Like yoga, the hot yoga on the gold coast to like hippie weirdo yoga bells to like yoga in Portugal in Portuguese. That's such an interesting anthropological study of different cultures. It was just a fucking great learning experience. And then I just rolled that into, okay, CJ has gone. I'm not going to be depressed. He was my best friend. Um, fuck, I still got to go on tour. Like, what am I going to do? You know, let's just roll that same mentality into staying. So I'd, you know, stay with all over the place. It's been great for me. Like the upside has been amazing. It was how much I've learned of like, okay, like what does this person do? Or what does that person do? How do they have fun? When you wrote the recent articles on Stab that were really incredibly well received and the general theme of those were finance and value, but there was also a lot of life lessons and things that you mentioned across those articles. But one of the things that stood out was the biggest thing you've ever invested in is relationships. Is that been something that you've been aware that you've done or has that just been a byproduct of, of your own sort of personality? It was by accident at first. And then, uh, I recognized it later in life. Um, you know, I got, 
I got hooked up with my wife now when I was 18. And obviously when you're 18, you have no idea what's going on. Um, you know, there's two check boxes when you meet a woman. Will she have sex with me? Is she hotter than me? That's it. There's only two boxes to check. She checked both boxes and it was off to the races. Okay, this one's great. Um, seriously didn't learn until 10 years later. You know, my other friends are getting divorces, going bankrupt, credit card problems, all kinds of shit. And I realized there's a third box, which is more important than the first two, is not crazy. <laughs> and my wife, um, you know, ticked that one by a mile. Like that was, that's her most redeeming quality is not crazy. And then I kind of started looking around and thinking about, um, thinking about relationships and like how much I've succeeded based on her as a baseline or like her help helping me out never would have made it to where I am today without, uh, without her support. And you think about that a lot. Okay. Like I didn't do any of this by myself where, you know, even though you think you did, like I made all the trades myself to make, you know, life changing money and I did all the photography myself and I did well with that. But from the beginning, I've seen other photographers all the time, video guys, whatever guys on tour, you know, wives, what husbands give them grief, like crazy guilt trip. You're going away again. But my wife, when I wanted to go full throttle into photography, we're boyfriend, girlfriend at the time, I guess. And I was like, hey, I think I'm going to do this. Like, I'm going to buy the big camera and the big lens and make the whole investment. Like, are you into this? And she's like, yeah, I'm in. And, uh. Since then, there's never been a, a a chance where I see it all the time, especially on like a free surf trip or something like guys are like, OK, we're going to change our tickets and stay four more days. And I'll see guys sweating. Oh, my God. You know, writers, photographers, surfers, video guys, all, all different people, you know, sometimes happens, sometimes it doesn't. But I'll see guys sweating. Oh, God, my girlfriend's giving me so much shit about this. I got to get home and I just text my wife. We have a kid. And she works in the summertime, like 70 hours a week. And I just go, hey, I'm actually going to be home four days later. And that's it. There's no, like, it's not a question. It's just, hey, this is my job. I'm going to be home at this time. And she's totally supportive. And, like, that takes a ton of stress. I see how stressed people are. Scott Galloway always says whoever you partner with is, you know, or choose to have kids with or partner with long term is the most important decision you'll ever make. And I've got a, I mean, just even based on the examples you just gave before and then my own observations, it seems to be true in terms of long-term fulfillment and, and happiness. So I try to tell young kids this, like kids that are 19 or 20, and just like, uh, stock tip, this, that. And I was like, I try to tell them about forming great relationships. And I was like, dude, get a wife that you're psyched on, that is uh, supportive of you. And they seriously look at me like I have a dick growing on my forehead. And I can't get it through enough of like how important that is to your long-term success <clears throat> forever is to have a partner that, uh, you know, is going to be supportive of all these things. I never would have uh, gotten to where I am without my wife's help. And, and what do you think is the difference between someone that's genuine and then people that are out there pursuing relationships and they're, and they're meeting everyone, but they, they come across more as a like opportunist, like a networker, someone that yeah, it's a little bit slimy perhaps. Um, as far as on the surf tour, I think it's super easy. Um, I, I kind of watch it as like a sociology experiment. Like you look at like, I hearken back to like people's, you know, 
baseline DNA, like as a caveman. And, uh, you know, a lot of people are like, oh, fuck, why all the surfers like you so much? Some cop weird question like this. And I'm like, it's pretty caveman-ish. Like the one caveman goes to the watering hole and doesn't die. The other caveman goes, doesn't die, then they all go. Um, follow everyone in. Like if one, you know, it's there's so many moving parts and surfing and it's hard to like really grow a relationship in two weeks at an event. But if one surfer vets you, it's like, oh, this is a good guy. I really like hanging out with him. Then all of a sudden, like, you know, if Coco vets me, then Steph can go, oh, okay, I I feel similar to Coco. Like, this guy's all right. I'll, I'll give him a chance. And uh, it's super primal of, like, that group think of people vetting you. And uh, I think it's pretty quick, too. People are pretty quick to pick pick up on, like, oh, no one likes that guy. Must be something wrong with him. Like, let's not let's not uh let's not associate with him and uh yeah it snowballs pretty quick that network as long as your uh other people are vetting you then um it's your it's your opportunity to lose and i'm sure people really appreciate your vulnerability you're you're super open and happy to talk about whatever and that came across in the stories that you wrote and i was wondering was it did you have any reservations about bearing all your tips and tricks and personal information and investment strategies? Um, no, I didn't. I don't, um, as of, you know, as of late, I'm pretty, uh, you know, I've been pretty excited to share that stuff with like the younger guys or girls on tour or anyone really. And it's a hard, it's such a weird, um, money's such a weird faux pas thing for us to talk about. I don't know about in a lot of other cultures, but definitely like Australia, America, it's such a uh, tight, tight, weird thing to speak about. Yeah, I mean, it's so supercharged with emotion and everyone's got a different relationship with money. Um, but at the extreme end, it's associated with evil. And I think people are often feel like they're going to be judged for being open about it. And yeah, it, it really was remarkable to me that your level of comfortability with it and really refreshing. And I think that's why people loved it so much is because people want to know and learn and understand how to how to work with it because it's such a useful tool. I mean, it gives you, you can buy food for starters, but when you get to a certain point, it can, it can give you free time and a quality of life that you might not have otherwise. Yeah. I've been practicing for years, like talking to people, you know, close to me or on tour, just like, fuck, let's just get it out there. And if people want, you know, some people want to hear and some people don't, some people don't want to talk at all. Um, you know, that's fine. And I'll, you know, turn the conversation to something else. Uh, with those with those people but a lot of people do like want to hear and want that knowledge and like I don't know anything but I'm just willing to have that conversation and just bounce ideas off of and like you know you get into people with money and like I talked to my friend the other day who's my age and he didn't know the difference between a mutual fund and an IRA which is a type of an account and I was like dude you're you need to know these things like this is really important for you you know, for the rest of your life that you understand this shit. Um, it's super important. So yeah, I'm willing to, uh, you know, willing to lay it out there. Um, people are psyched to hear about it. Yeah, definitely. And you're in this investment themed group text and you've got people like Kelly in there, Dorian, I'm sure a, a, a big long list of other high profile people in the surf community that everyone would know. What do you get from, from being part of that thread? What sort of conversations happen on there? Yeah, that thread, it's a, th- it's a group thread. 
and it's a contest rolled into one, like a yearly um, percentage gain contest with winners and losers. What's it called? Yeah, the group thread is called Losers Take Profits. Been on that for a year and a half now or something. It was a quote from uh, Dave Portnoy, and the guy who owns Barstool Sports was really into stock trading in you know, 2020 when we were in the pandemic and locked up, and he has high energy and nothing to do, and he's super vocal on Twitter, and he was on all the media stations making crazy outlandish comments, and one of his ones was Losers Take Profits. It was just funny. You know, just group thread of education. And, you know, there's a lot, yeah, there's older guys on there, like, Dorian, Kelly, Ross, myself, and then there's younger guys on there like Nate, John, Kieran, Eric. It's super cool to like learn. Yeah, it's almost 95% investment talk and 5% shit talk. It's really pretty real. It's funny, but it's a lot of, uh, yeah, it's a lot of education on there. Like the younger guys educating us about like all these crazy fucking NFT bullshit. And then the older guys who do it a lot. And I've done it for a long time of like, you know, this is where I fucked up. These are my mistakes. And this is what I'm trading right now. And, you know, these are what my position sizes look like. And, uh, you know, it's or even like helping, you know, helping the younger guys get set up in like the right accounts. Like, oh, this account is tax free and this is a tax shelter and you should be in this account for, you know, this or yes, this is a good education. And you've won that competition. I think, did you win the most recent year? Yeah, I won last year. Was that was that a matter of luck, or did you did you out strategize these guys, or, or what did what do you put it down to when you when you have a really good year? So I've been doing this for since I was seventeen, so twenty five years, and twenty twenty was the craziest year I've ever seen by far, by an order of magnitude. I've never seen anything like twenty twenty. Um, we had that crazy dip in March, and then it just ripped north right after, and wouldn't stop. I had originally wanted my account to be, you know, it's just a, it's a separate account. It's a separate Robinhood account. You can fund it with just a little bit of money. And it's just based on percentage growth. Like we can't put different guys on a monetary scale. So it's just percentages. And um, I wanted to trade it radically different from my normal accounts, which are, you know, I'm an investor and I buy and hold for long periods of time. And I was just going to get wild with this thing two grand or five grand or something and go nuts. And I ended up, you know, just buying a couple shares of Tesla as a placeholder on January 1st until I saw the right market conditions to go crazy. And then the market went crazy for me. I never did anything. I made probably 15 trades all year. And I ended up at like 770% gain on the year. So an um, average an average return uh, you could think would be probably like what do people say like 10% or 12% and you you manage 700. Yeah, most fund managers are trying to track the S&P, just beat the S&P. S&P usually returns about 10%. So most fund managers are aiming for, you know, 12 or 13%. Um, yeah, I returned 770%. <laughs> that must have been a world record on the on the group text. It was fun as shit. I got trophies here to, from the... Uh, oh, no way. Look at that. So that's... It's, the boys bought me, a, bought me a trophy. Wow. It's very phallic. It's a very pointy <laughs> penis-shaped <laughs> object. And so that's you having a bit of fun with your investment. You still, you still have your, your less risky mutual funds, uh, more diversified 
investing and then, and then you've got this area where you'll experiment and take a few more risks. Is that generally how you run it? Yeah, I have my core account, which has way more money into, in it, um, but I've actually ended up trading my, uh, my contest account similar to my core account. And uh, yeah, I just never, I never went crazy with the contest account, just buy and hold a couple of positions and that's it, exactly like my, my regular core account. And it's interesting because photography is an increasingly difficult place to make money and, then, and yet you've thrived. Can you talk us about your business model? Because you've described yourself as the Walmart of surf photography, meaning you have to sell dozens of hundreds of images on a trip to make your money back. Can you just kind of explain how you, how you made a decision to when everyone else was complaining and there was a lot of uncertainty, surf photography had become completely democratized in terms of the accessibility of equipment and, and it was, I mean, photography just was exploded and was completely ubiquitous. Even mobile phones could, could take a decent image on land. And you, rather than essentially complain, were able to completely thrive or, uh, in this, when, when this shift happened. Can you, can you talk us through how, how you did that? Yeah, I don't know, kind of two, two separate questions. Um, yeah, I kind of got started. I got started with shooting film and then, you know, everyone went to digital and, um, you know, I was like, whatever, Grom, starter, new kid on the block, wasn't doing anything business-wise early I was just seeing, you know, I probably had a couple covers or whatever, but definitely wasn't like top tier photographer. But I was seeing early, like where all the eyeballs were, you know, super early was Surfline and they had, you know, their, their photos on Surfline were kids, moms, Chris Burkhardt was on retainer and that was it. And I was like, fuck, everyone just looks at Surfline all day long. And I would just, I would sell photos to Surfline for 50 bucks or whatever their rate was all day long and the other photographers would freak out on me like yell at me on the beach that was a you know that photo was a cover shot you shouldn't have give that to surfline i would take so much abuse and i was like i don't think it was it was literally a, a chop pop air at the beach park of you know dustin barca i don't think that was a cover i think that was a surfline photo oh no you should have hold on to that and i was like no and then i would push back and i would say hey how many hours did you spend today? This is early internet too. Like how many hours today, how many hours today did you spend on the internet? This is before phones even worked super good. And the guys would go, I don't know, like hour, two hours. I'm like, how many hours did you spend reading a magazine? I don't know, five minutes. All right, I go, exactly. That's where I want to be. I want to live where the eyeballs live. And then Facebook, Instagram came around and I just quickly pivoted to that right away all right, this is obviously where all the eyeballs are. This is where all the brands are going. Um, I want to do this. And so it was super hard. And it's really hard to like look back on it now and go, okay, pick your A photos and your B photos and give the B photos to Facebook and Instagram. It's real easy to say that now. At the time, it was impossible to like edit your own photo, edit your own digital photos and say which are good and which are bad or which are the A photos and which are the A plus photos. It was really hard to differentiate. And I just got good at it with practice 
and uh, yeah, Stab used to have a column called Stab Full Frame, and it was one photo every day, and my goal was to be that photo every single day in a write-up, like a little three or four paragraph, I mean three or four sentence write-up with that photo. And I was like, I just want to do that. I want to make sure I'm getting a photo out every single night, you know, not dragging my cards to a hard drive and coming and, you know, and mailing them to the editor, you know, to look at them a month later. Like I want to be out that night and I want to be photos out in the athlete's hands that same night before bedtime, every single night. And it's been like that, uh, yeah, nonstop. Just wanted to get it done that night. And then as far as business, um, yeah, came out of like, um, I went to photography school twice, I have two degrees in photography, and they were kind of like technical schools. And the guys were all super business oriented. So I came out with like a decent business head on my shoulders and not the greatest photographer, still am not. And I see a lot of young guys that were my, like when I was in there, when I was in their shoes, that they, they now like just don't have a grasp on business. It's also new and like don't have an understanding of what's what on the business front. And I always felt like I had a super good grasp on that. And, you know, even if I was a, um, you know, 80% photographer, I was going to be a hundred percent or 110% at deliverables. And I think when you're dealing with these big brands, um, you know, same with like their production, they can't just be hitting home runs every once in a while. They need consistency. Like they need images every single night at 8 p.m., always. Like, it's not, oh, shit, I forgot, or I went out to dinner, or I got drunk, and, oh, I messed up. You know, I might not be the greatest photographer, but I'm always going to deliver, you know, every single time. And I think that's a decent asset to have. I find there to be, it's, it's, a, it's a strange, subjective, and insecure place, surf photography, just, just by the nature of, of, of what the medium is. And I find it really refreshing that rather than trying to compensate for that insecurity, you don't seem to have any ego. I may have some ego. I'm a freak. But uh, with the photography shit, it's not like, um, it's not self-deprecating. It's just being honest. Like I just, I think I'm decent, but I'm, I don't think I'm at like that elite, elite level of being a photographer. I'm probably 80 or 90% there. Um, it also just gives me opportunity to like, maybe grow. Like I try and learn from other people or like, okay, shit, like that looks really good. You know, I'm, I didn't, I didn't see that, you know, let me try and, uh, you know, let me try and grow in this respect. And it's not bullshit. I just don't think I'm that great. I think I'm decent. I'm, I'm super, I know what I'm good at. I'm great at emailing. I'm great at deliverables. I'm great at speed. I'm great at being productive. I'm just not, I'm just one step below as a photographer. Hmm. Have you, have you ever heard that quote from Patrick O'Dell, you know, the skate photographer and filmmaker? He makes Epically Lated. His, his quote was, the hardest thing about photography is that it's so easy. Yeah, the equipment shit is super easy. Um, anyone can do it. I trip on like young guys that hit me up about equipment. Like, oh, should I get this lens or this body or that or whatever? And I was like, I tell them every time. And I go, dude, it doesn't matter what you use. Like, I don't even know half the shit I have. I just buy whatever is the nicest stuff so my other stuff doesn't break. I don't want my stuff breaking on the road ever, but I don't even I don't even know what equipment I even own. I feel like I could get it done with any Canon. I hear people like, "Oh, this file format sucks or that lens sucks or this or that." I'm like, "I don't think so. I think your mindset sucks." 
I think I could get it done <laughs> with any with any piece of equipment, any Canon, Nikon, Sigma, Minolta, whatever, like the, they're all the same shit. Like you, as long as you're a good photographer, you're getting it done. The equipment doesn't matter at all. Yeah, and I'd love to get a sense of your work ethic and hustle because you're super famous for it. And I actually loved in one of the stories you wrote, you said, I kind of used to know how to go somewhere in a swell on my own credit card. Then I would claw back my expenses $50 at a time. That was on a shoestring budget though. And just just knowing that that was your approach and, and how hard you would have to work and the amount of emails and the amount of images you would have to circulate and then manage that process. It sounds like you were working extremely hard. Yeah, super early on, I would look at almost as like a, like a profit and loss spreadsheet. Like I would go to Puerto Rico and I'd go, all right, well, my ticket costs this, my rental car costs this, I slept on my buddy's floor, my food costs this. All right, I got to make back, you know, 650 bucks. Let's go. And I would look at it as like two columns on a spreadsheet, like profit and loss. And I'd be like, all right, just got to make at least that. Um, and it was a good learning lesson of like trying to claw that money back. I don't think I've, no, I don't think I've know for a fact I've never been on a trip and lost money ever. But that's been, that's been something you've been super aware of, obviously. And I guess what, what gets measured gets managed. And to, for you to have that level of discipline and did, what, what, what sets you apart from other other people with similar opportunities that haven't been as success, successful as you? What do you see as the, as the difference? It's got to just be the work ethic, yeah? I don't think um, a lot of guys are good photographers. Um, and, you know, it's not all it's cracked up to be, right? It's not. And it's hard to tell people this because it does look super fun. And it is super fun. But a lot of people, it's also hard to generalize every photographer ever because a lot of them work crazy hard too. I mean, all the ones that have risen to the top work crazy hard, you know, similar if not equal to me. But I'll see a lot of guys that are like, fuck, I just want to, I don't want to be on your level. I just want to have a good time. And that's more important to me than, you know, getting on the level that you're on. And, uh, yeah, sometimes it's difficult, right? Like, I remember, I think about this all the time. There was a time in France where the waves were pumping. In France in the fall, it gets light crazy early, 5.30 a.m., and the sun sets at, like, 9.30 p.m. And so, and it's hard to get to the beach because the parking, and you got to walk over the big dune, and you're pretty stuck there all day if it's firing. So I remember going to the beach four days in a row where the alarm would go off at 4.30 a.m. and then I'd still be stroking the keyboard at 12.30 p.m. Holy shit. Because you, dude, the, the, the light's beautiful at 9.30 and you don't even get back to your car till 10. On the fourth day, we'd have no food left in the house. I was begging whatever surfer I was with to go get me to-goes. Just get me anything. I don't care what it is. Um, can you please just get me some food? Eat it while I'm typing and, you know, head would hit the bed at, you know, head would hit the pillow at 1230 and I'd go to sleep at one and the alarm would go off at 430 again. And on the fourth day, I cried like grown man. <laughs> you know, you sound like the biggest pussy, you know. Oh, no, that would break down. me. I, I wouldn't last four days doing that. That is brutal. Quiet down. All you did was go to the beach and shoot photos all day. And uh, yeah, because I knew the alarm was going to go off at 430 again the next morning. And I woke up the next morning, it was pouring rain. And uh it was great. Yeah, like that's not fun. No one, I don't want to do that. No one wants to do that. 
no one wants to go to bed at 12.30 and have the alarm go off at 4.30 and then you're on the beach literally all day with a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. But it's just all I've ever done. Most days aren't like that. A lot of days are like long, but you know, it, it lets up, you know, after two or three days of a great swell. Then you got some down days to catch up on whatever. And a lot of, a lot of the places on tour, the light doesn't, it's not light till 9.30 at night either. But yeah, a lot of people don't, um, just don't want to do that. And I don't blame them. It's not, uh, that's not super fun, but I've committed to it and I'm going to do it forever. I'm not going to ever not get my work done that same night and not stay at the beach when every last surfer is surfing. Like if they can go surfing, I can be there on the beach and shoot it. Wow. That's impressive. And you know what's something I always really admired about you is you, you mentored a young photographer and, and started working with Jack Barrett. He's a kid that I met when he was 15, I was working at Surfing World Magazine in Australia and he came in and did work experience and he impressed us then. He was, he's smart and, and funny and, and just a good guy to be around. But you gave him a lot of opportunities. You would, you would take him uh, around the world and, and then you also didn't ever, you know, just use his photo, photos under, under your name. You would always give, let him get the credit. And I think that's, I think that's kind of uncommon. A lot of times people would, would, would take those tags, whereas you would, you know, you would let him pass a photo on to Kelly and then he would, you know, tag Jack, which obviously builds his profile. And Yeah, with Jack, that was super fun. Actually, before Jack, I, I had um, Trevor Moran work with me for like, I think almost five years. And um, a lot of similarities between those two as far as like, I saw a lot of potential in both of them. And, um, you know, either they were, you know, in Trevor's sense, he was um, maybe just spinning his wheels a little bit or like couldn't get traction. And I was like, fuck, this guy's a really good photographer. He just needs that that push or that little bit of help to get there. But, you know, he there's a talent that you can really develop. And then the same thing with Jack. He was just young. And, um, you know, at the time I needed, you know, I had so many clients and so much work that I, I also needed help on the road. You know, one guy shoots the comp, one guy shoots the free surf, or one guy swims and one guy shoots beach. And, uh, you know, I saw Jack had some decent potential. And uh, it was cool to like, you know, I learned stuff from him. And I learned stuff. I talked to young guys, you know, probably on any given year. There's probably, you know, 20 young photographers in my DMs or on my text threads that I like actively respond to you know, that have legitimate good, if they ask good questions, I like to give good answers. If they ask dumb questions, I'll give them dumb answers. But um, yeah, I enjoyed that. And uh, yeah, Jack was great and I needed help and he had a great time. Man, dude, that guy had a blast on the road. He really soaked it all up. He had so much fun. Something that comes along with your reputation for work ethic is your reputation for having a good time. I've even heard that you put, put on a special little, I don't know what to call it, a pendant or a, a necklace, some sort of animal penis. What, what is that? The, uh, the raccoon dick necklace. <laughs> I'm a little, uh, what is the story? What is the story behind that? I travel with a, uh, I travel with a Speedo. It used to be leopard, now it's rainbow. I travel with a raccoon dick necklace and I travel with a diamond earring keep them all in the bag and they all come out on special occasions and you know just to have a good laugh um on a down day or whatever and people like 
rag me or whatever, or just ask like, what do you have a Speedo in your, what do you wear that thing for? Like, what do you have a Speedo in your bag for? And uh, I just go, hey, listen, I, I know it looks super fun. Like everything that I'm doing or whatever, I have a great time, but it's really, it's just work. And it's, some of it's stressful. And those little trinkets remind me to have a good time always. Like I can open up my bag after, you know, a 40 hour plane flight, you know, feel like I want to die and go, oh, okay, it's just, we're having a good time here. Um, yeah, it's kind of a reminder for me to like, okay, lighten up. These, this isn't that hard. <laughs> this isn't that serious. Let's have a good time. Yeah. And the, the raccoon dick comes out in uh where do you even get a raccoon dick from? Like, how what? How does that happen? How does that come into your life? I got them on uh, I got them on eBay. Two of them for like five bucks, all up. They were they were uh, earrings. I gave one to a buddy, then I fastened one into a necklace, and now the necklace hangs out hangs out with me, and it comes out on. It's actually an aphrodisiac. This uh, baculum comes out on comp nights, comes out at weddings. Um, I mean, comp finals nights comes out at weddings, comes out at big parties. Um, yeah, still, uh, I think Bruce Irons still calls me Rat Dick. <laughs> I don't think he knows what my name is. He just calls me Rat Dick. Oh, that's great. Any other, any other topics like based on everything we've covered in terms of relationships, money, um, just work ethic, tour life, photography, anything that we haven't necessarily touched on? The Stab Highway stuff? Fuck, that's been really good, Stab Highway. I can't, uh, I don't know, maybe this goes in the podcast too, but... <clears throat> I trip on how, you know, I've been watching that and I try and learn and I think about like, tr- what can I take from this or value or where does this fit? Or like, what, what did I learn by watching this? And I really, you know, instead of just being entertained, like I'm super impressed by uh, Harry Bryant on the thing. I've, you know, I think a lot about value where price and the intersection of like price and quality and he's got to be the most valuable surfer in Australia for sure. Um, you know, from what he gets paid to what he brings to the table, he's by far the most valuable surfer. Let me take rock that back a little bit. I think Steph's quite valuable. Yeah. But on the show, I was like, man, I can't believe how much value this guy brings, you know, to the show or to his sponsors or whatever, like wildly impressed with him as like a, you know, thinking about in terms of like an asset, yeah, it, it's every time you you just stick a camera in his face and ask him any question, and he gives you this incredible soundbite. He says something funny, and then that he just he's thinking and the creativity he has he takes out into the water and he does funny and hilarious shit out there, on t- as well as this incredible level of surfing and style. And yeah, I'm with you on that one. I think that's a, a really good observation, and it, it particularly shines in Stab Highway because. It's the sort of shit that he does anyway. He's always looking to run a mark and, and surf all day and then party all night and, and just fucking make everyone laugh. I've never even met Harry Bryant ever and I'm watching this Stab Highway and he would be a guy that would be on the like, oh, I don't want to work with him, no way. And I'm watching him on Stab Highway and I'm like, oh shit, that guy's like, I would love to go on a trip with him. That guy super, looks super fun. Yeah, I think you guys would get along real well. He's a... He's a good time that's for sure yeah oh fuck almost forgot i gotta ask one more thing life uh, life on tour endless travel you spend a lot of time eating out and i was talking to stace galbraith before i interviewed you and he mentioned that you're quite a prolific 
uh, contributor to Yelp. And he sent me this one. He sent me this one. I want to read out, and I'd love to get, love to hear you um, hear about your Yelp reviews. But and I'll bleep the name, so don't worry about that. But this review read: "Dirty table near the potbelly fireplace. Pretty sure I contracted herpes from the unclean surface. The glass of cab salve I had was surely made with antifreeze. I would rather drink urine than another glass of that. I had the pizza." The cheese was was bought in bulk from Checkers and could have easily been confused with a burning car tire during a government overthrow. The rabid cat they had walking around the restaurant turned its nose up at the pile of melted car fire I tried to feed it. I'd rather burn in hell for the next 1,000 years than ever step foot in this restaurant again. One star. That was uh, that is a pretty brutal review. <laughs> I think there was a photo of the cat in there too. Oh, yeah, there's a little photo of the cat here just sitting on the table just looking up at you with these... Uh, these big eyes far out. So is that, is that, do you remember that one? Yeah, I remember that one quite vividly. That was, uh, we're in J-Bay and fuck the food in South Africa is some of the best in the world. I really, I really value food and food as an experience. Um, so I really, dis, I really get bummed when I have a shitty meal somewhere because it's really important to me. And, um, yeah, some of the restaurants around the world on tour, some of my favorite restaurants ever. And I went to this restaurant on someone's recommendation and it was fucking horrible. But yeah, I'll craft, I'll craft those Yelp reviews, not dissimilar to crafting the emails that I'll write to the brands or to you guys at night or whatever. And uh gives me some pleasure. That was probably after like five or six glasses of wine though too, that one. I'm always, I'm always wondering who's writing these Yelp reviews and a lot of them are fairly uninspired, probably bitter people, but... Man, when you come across one that's, you know, hilarious, it's so good. And, and how, how often do you write them? Not that often, no. Just when you're feeling particularly need, inspired? Yeah, just when I've gone past six glasses of wine. <laughs> I, uh, I, I, yeah, I would need something to really set me off. And that one really set me off that night. And that one really set me off that night. And that one really set me off that night. That one really set me off that night. Thanks, Ryan, and thanks for listening. Please don't forget to send your surf scenes in. Danny at stabmag.com, Buck at stabmag.com, and we'll see you next week. I'm reminded of a fond time in my life. I think I had just started at Surfing Magazine. This is about 10 years ago. And I was trying to check in for like the media thing in the van, Triple Crown. There's like a media trailer. And I'd been to like events before as like a media person. But this one, you're supposed to get a little badge thing. And I was like, that's sick. And so I went in there one day and my name was on a list. But since I knew I was going to get this little piece of plastic and they're going to take my photo and everything, I was like, it'd be so good if I could just get that and accept it's like my photo. And it just says Laird Hamilton as my name. <laughs> <laughs> and so I went in there and like do the photo, everything. And they're like, yeah, and your name? I'm like, Laird Hamilton. <laughs> And they didn't believe me, obviously. And I was like really going hard. I was like, oh, like I'm, you know, I'm younger than him. Like my parents, it was just the same last name. And they really respected what he was doing. So they gave me that name. And I was like really pushing because I really wanted this piece of plastic. And they're like, well, we're going to have to see some ID. Like they started getting really suspicious. And I obviously didn't have any idea or anything. And then they got so suspicious. They like kicked me out. Like I didn't get in the pass at all. And I didn't get to go into like the media zones for the whole time. Because eventually they just thought that I was just a random guy off the street. 
that was trying to like get some free lunches or whatever. Yeah. So that's just a fun triple crown memory. I'd like to share. I went back the next year and I, I like toned it down a little bit and I got one to say Laird Buckley. I'm real proud of that. I think I still have that somewhere. (laughs) 